Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building that's like 120 yards away. What do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk's being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Good morning, Corey. Good morning, Randy. How's life in Idaho? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've uh, I made it back to Idaho from Nevada, and I'll have to say, weather has been crazy this spring. Where are you? Well, I mean, it's, it's I May. Thought, no, I thought Nevada is nothing but sunshine and roadrunners. <laughs> oh my goodness! No, we got uh, snow two of the four days we were there, and rain and wind the other two days we were there, and it was oh. miserable. So is it safe to say you were somewhere north of Vegas then? Uh, yes, we were somewhere <laughs> north of Vegas. <laughs> I think. I, I don't know the map really well, but it seems like Vegas is pretty far south. Uh, you, you you weren't there gambling or anything? You're, what were you doing, shed hunting? No, we were gambling. We, uh, oh, we were, really? Yeah, we were gambling on finding a shed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, well, that's what it's become in Nevada anymore. They, they instituted a shed hunting season, I think, three years ago. Okay. And now it's definitely a gamble if you wait until the season opens whether or not you're going to find one. Because there is more antler poaching going on in Nevada than anywhere. Really? Yeah. Dang. That's annoying, you know. It kind of reminds me of like travel restrictions on the forest. It works great until it doesn't work great, right? It works and great after, for the for the law abiding people, but it works even yeah. better for those that don't. And as quick as the first one or two people do it, the rest of people are like, "Well, hell, you know, if if I live by the law here, I'm I'm going to end up with an empty sack. I'm yep. I'm going to go do it." Yeah. Totally. Mm. No, there were there were more ATV tracks off-trail, off-road, running up and down ridges from four to six weeks ago than there used to be when there was no season. Really? So I think you have all the people who are breaking the breaking the season rule out there going, if I'm going to break the season rule, I might as well break the, the travel <laughs> rules and who knows what else uh, they're doing out there. You, you know, it's funny. Montana, we had a certain elk unit that they put on a limited entry draw and it was an unlimited tag. They're like, well, there's not a lot of elk there, so but we should protect them by just saying, all right, that's where you got to hunt if you draw the tag. Well, it got more hunting pressure just because it became <laughs> limited entry than yep. back when it was a general unit, so they got rid of it and made it a general unit again. <laughs> there's just something about people saying, well, it must be good if, if you know, if they yep. got to have a season on shed antler hunting, then... There must be, you know, some reason to go do it. So I'm going to go do it. Yep. <laughs> now, I think when there was no season, everyone was out there and they were patrolling each other. I mean, it's you aren't going to take a ATV off-road four miles and go way back in somewhere if there's a chance somebody else is going to be up in there hiking. But now they're like, hey, nobody's out here because there's a season and it's closed right now. So we're by ourselves. So we can, I think they're doing more damage with the season uh -huh. than they were without it. <laughs> oh gosh well i'm glad you're doing that kind of stuff because while you were there i was in minnesota with my buddies and there was a serious beaver uh depletion going on uh, <laughs> I, uh, 
not that the audience probably wants to know, but uh, I grew up beaver trapping, and in Minnesota they have a spring season, and it's so much fun. Oh, it's it's right up there, not quite with shooting grouse, but pretty close. <laughs> oh, man, get yeah. you around a beaver pond during elk season, and we'd never could be never find a yep. bugle. No, so we caught fifty three beaver in four and a half days. Wow. So. Yeah. The downside of catching 53 beavers, then you got 53 beaver. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of skinning. Yeah. My hands uh, were the first night, uh, me and Dick and Wally, I think we skinned six of them the first day. And we kind of had a little bit of a, an assembly line going there. I was doing the rough skin and Dick was doing the fleshing and Wally was tacking them on the boards and I'm really getting soft, Corey. The next day I woke up, my hands just ached from all the grabbing and pulling. And it's like, Randy, you are definitely an accountant, man. You can't even skin six beaver without your hands hurting. But, you know, um, so, so, so you've eaten wolf, I know. Yep. What's beaver like? Really good. We, I've heard that. We cook, yeah, we cook six of them. Uh, Big Falls, Minnesota is a town of 220 people, so we put out the invite. Hey, come down to Dick's house, and uh, he had a literal full house uh, <laughs> of people. Uh, our buddy Sean, who is the mayor, he cooked, he grilled and smoked some of it on his Traeger. And then uh, we did Hank Shaw's uh, barbacoa recipe on one big batch of it. And then we did just like a traditional pot roast on another batch of it. And it got a lot of thumbs up. Everybody's <laughs> like, you could tell the first bite they were like, had this look on their face of, I can't believe I'm going to eat a rodent. And then after they ate it, they're like, whoa, <laughs> this is really good. What's and it taste like? It's a really mild meat. Uh, it's it's kind of stringy, like bear meat, you know, as far as texture. But as far as flavor and taste, it's got that really mild, sweet taste, almost like pronghorn does. So, hmm. no, I, red I, meat. I, yeah. 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 So any concerns with uh, making sure it's cooked well, like with a yeah. with a dog yep. or a cat? Yeah, you do. I mean, beaver don't get much of the the gnosis trichinosis uh, endocrinosis that stuff but they get tularemia uh and so you just you know first of all when you're skinning them if you saw a bunch of tumors you'd be like mm, <laughs> that one that one's going out to the ravens uh so but now it, it's it's really not a, a big issue with the water waterborne rodents like that but yeah you know you, you catch a bunch of these 40 45 pound beaver and you got an awful lot of beaver meat in a hurry <laughs> so, uh, oh man the randy yeah. and Corey rabbit holes here we go we're <laughs> yeah. podcast and we just gave a full full discourse on beaver trapping and cooking yeah yeah the, uh, between uh, isn't this supposed to be about elk hunting and not so. antler collecting not and shed trapping? hunting yeah so all right well when you go through all of our emails like i did in the last couple hours uh you can tell that some of the tag results 
have been issued. Yep. And just based on those emails, I can tell that New Mexico has already released its draw results. <laughs> <laughs> because the number of people who emailed us and said, hey, I drew, they, they usually don't give a specific unit. They'll just say, yep. I drew the Gila or I drew some place in New Mexico. And then they have a series of questions about it. And it uh, usually starts with, where should I go? Yeah. <laughs> what, what drainage should I hunt in? Can you send me a pin? Have you been there before? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple of them are like that. Fortunately, I think we've warned our audience enough of them that we don't, we don't see any value in giving coordinates or pins because, you know, where they were in the year that that pin was there may not be where they're at this year because of a drought or because of a heavy monsoon or maybe this was where they were in September in the first archery season. Well, guess what? If you drew the late October post-rut rifle hunt, they're not going to be there. So that's, I guess, I guess that's why we focus more on understanding elk behavior and how they use the landscape and less on this drainage or this basin or this creek or this peak or whatever. Yep. No, if we sent so. a pin to somebody and said, right here, this is this is where the elk are based on our research or based on our experience, they're going to go there. And, and like you said, if there's a drought, if there's hunting pressure, all these different things are going to go there and not see anything. And, and they're going to think Newberg's yeah. a liar. Yeah, well, that's probably true. You know, I'm full of BS <laughs> anyhow. So I, I can't believe anyone would plan a hunt around my advice. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I think so. you, you touched on something there. Understanding elk behavior, elk, you know, whether it's calling, whether it's feed sources, whether it's migration, whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. with us sharing what we know about that, our hope is that the listeners can take that and apply yeah. it to their own research and their own e-scouting and find their own area that they're going to be able to adjust. They're going to know, hey, this is this is based on what I'm looking for, but I got here and now there are there's no water. So I've got to adjust and go find water. Or there's a bunch of hunting pressure here. I've got to find where the elk are going to go when they're getting pushed away from it rather than drive to a pin, get out and walk around and realize there's no elk here. Now what do I do? I need somebody to send me another pin to go check instead of knowing what to do yeah. and, and how to find them. Yeah, and there's so much great stuff out there. I, I'm really nerding out on elk forage in the last six months and i've the last couple of weeks i've been putting together this script that i'm gonna i'm redoing my e-scouting videos it's gonna be way way deeper dive on certain things and you know i always talk about the five calendars or five periods of the elk calendar and the first three the early season pre-rut and peak rut are mostly influenced by forage and food just because in the pre-rut and peak rut you're looking for cows well you know cows attract bulls that's, that's why you're <laughs> looking for cows and uh they're driven by food and the more i dive into this Corey, i i feel like i don't i started from almost a zero place about my knowledge and understanding of elk movements based on food uh, forage availability and the energy requirements that cow elk have. And a guy from your state did some really cool studies. He's at the University of Idaho. 
about thermal regulation, i.e. staying cooler or, or staying warm, depending on the temperature. And he compared two elk herds, one in the northeast corner of Oregon, uh, up in that Blue Mountain country there, yep. and then one of your desert herds down uh, near Arco. Uh, down in the desert and they collared them they they examined their behaviors how they uh, thermal regulated at different times of the year and uh, your desert elk and this then holds true to studies i'm reading about new mexico your desert elk spend more energy thermal regulating in the summer or as much as the winter elk in the mountainous country of northeast oregon spend in the winter wow and here's what complicates it for those cow elk in the summertime this is another thing and this is true across all studies is that i'm i'm going to use a base number of kilocalories it's a measurement of energy i think a kilocalorie is the amount of energy that raises one kilogram of water one degree celsius or something like that but anyhow it's 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 (laughs) kind of like you're going all engineering on us here yeah yeah i know and but it's it's a measurement of stored fat right it's you know fat converts to energy well Let's take a 500-pound cow elk. She, and if I, I might be slightly off in these numbers because I'm not recalling it the, super precisely, but she uses 6,000 kilocalories per day to maintain, just to stay at where she is. During gestation, she has to add 15% to that for the whole period of gestation. Then you would think, okay, she has this calf. Now she doesn't have to worry about feeding this calf inside her. During lactation, her energy demand goes up by 70%. Wow. During the period of lactation. So you get these cow elk in these hot environments, and what they have found is they seek shade and thermal regulation during the daytime more than they do forage and so sometimes their their shade is very far from the forage so the you know locomotion the term that uh, the biologists use the actual act of moving back and forth is another net drain on the energy buildup of these cow elk so you add all right they got they're trying to stay cool and they're, it's environmental conditions make that hard Radiant sun, besides just ambient temperature, radiant sun is super, super hard on them. And that's why they go to the little shaded thing and why we always talk about in hot periods, right? North, northeast, northwest slopes. So she's got that. She's now got a lactating calf that's demanding 70% more energy from her. And the, all the studies, whether from Yellowstone, from Arizona, from Nevada, from Colorado, say that a cow elk that has 10 to 15% body fat by uh, uh, September again, by the time the next breeding cycle comes, has a 90 plus percent chance of being pregnant. After she, if she has less than 10%, the chance of being pregnant goes way down. 
So you think about, here's this cow elk. She's got all these demands. And on top of that, she's got to find enough forage to regain 10 to 15% of her, another 50 to 70 pounds of body fat in order to be healthy enough to, to, to go be bred through this whole thing. And then to, yeah. to make it through the winter with a yeah. gestation period of the length that they have. Mm-hmm. What What is gestation period? Is it about eight months? About uh, about 250 days, yep. It's pretty much every study is 250 days plus minus, uh, yeah. you know, a couple days. So they're doing, there's all these studies like A-B tests uh, between migratory and non-migratory elk. And I don't know if the scientists really decided to do it of, of migratory and non-migratory. I think they just picked two different environments and climates. But it just happens that these desert and warm country elk are for the most part, non-migratory. So then you look at why does a cow elk decide to winter somewhere 50 miles away? (laughs) Go through all the risks of migrating, you know, predation risk, human risk of getting run over, you know, all this stuff to get to some mountainous area. And they look at it and it's just a function of the quality of the forage in those mountain environments and this again now this nerds out on is it forbs shrubs or grasses those are the three categories that elk move back and forth from as far as what they prefer well the forbs are the greatest protein the greatest nutrition the greatest everything per volume of digestible food and the mountain environments provide forbs in May and June in high, high doses. So these cow elk are making this assessment that it's better for me to expose myself to all those risks, travel 50 miles, and spend the winter or the summer up there than it is to try and make a living down here in the warm country. And so the the idea of why I'm going through all this is people are going to be so tired of charts and graphs uh, <laughs> is gets back to your point that every year as conditions change, as moisture changes, as invasive plant species impact the landscape, if an allotment's been grazed by cattle or not grazed by cattle, Every one of those affect where the cow elk are going to be because they are in such intensive effort to increase body fat and the demands of lactation that they have to be where the absolute best forage is on the landscape. So our job as hunters is to know that, to understand that, to see how it plays out on whatever landscape we're hunting and say, all right, here's where the best forage is going to be. That's where the cow elk are going to be. And guess what? That's where the bulls are going to be on September 12th. Yep. Well, and that's interesting because, you know, I think it's, at least for me, I've always looked at grass. You know, man, there's so Mm -hmm. much just lush green grass here. Why wouldn't an elk be here? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't realize that forbs were much higher in protein and caloric intake for them and, if there's all this lush green grass, well, just up the ridge, there might be all of these forbs that are providing yep. more nutrition for them, and they're leaving that grass alone because it's not the most desirable at that time. So that's very, very insightful and helpful. Yeah, and then, you know, you take certain areas where there are not a lot of grasses in the fall. 
they have to switch over to more shrubbery, more browsing. And in some of these populations, the amount of juniper that elk eat is crazy. Really? Nevada wintering elk in some of their populations eat a ton of juniper and juniper berries. Hmm. And, and another shrub would be sage and other things like that. They prefer grasses if they can find them. Yeah. But, you know, where you were shed hunting in Nevada, Nevada's not known as, you know, amber waves of green. <laughs> uh, so no, I don't remember seeing anything green out there. It was all brown. Yeah. And then you, you go to unit uh, 10, unit 9 in Arizona. And their preferred wintering forage is cliff throats, which again huh. is, is a browse. Because there's, there's some places where there are grasses, but you get snow at that elevation up on the Mogollon Rim there. And so a lot of the grasses are covered, so they drift off slightly. And there's this elevation band that grows a lot of cliff throats. And that makes up a huge part of their diet at, at, in those late November, December hunts. If it's a early winter, you're going to see them in there. So it's I, I'm trying to make sense of it so that people don't just say, Newberg, you're boring me to tears. Click, you know, change the channel. I'm going to go watch Oprah reruns or something. Uh, but well, I think I think anybody that is truly interested in maximizing their efficiency as a hunter, as an elk hunter, is going to eat this up. I mean, I'm sitting here nerding out on what you're saying just because i've not done that deep of a dive before i mean i know if they need feed and i look around and say hey everything's dry in here there is no feed i need to go find something you know where, where there's going to be more feed but not at that level of understanding the difference between grasses and forbs and shrubs and brows and all of that and understanding different times of year you know shed hunting in the in the early spring I'm out there and I'm seeing all these willows and everything that are just munched off on the, I mean, they're all just squared off on the ends. And it's yep. like, why are they, there can't be a whole lot of nutrition in that, but that's the only it, nutrition that's out there during the winter. Exactly. They got to use, utilize what the landscape provides them. And so they look at all that and say, well, the cupboard's pretty bare right now, <laughs> but <laughs> these willows, these aspen buds, you know, certain types of of brows are better than trying to dig through the snow and find some old dried out grasses. Because, it, you know, this is the other part that I'm going to be nerding out on is survival for an elk is obtaining and retaining more calories than what's expended wasted or burned yep so if you got to go dig through a ton of snow to get you know a thousand kilocalories but it took you 1500 kilocalories to dig through that snow and to walk over to where those grasses were so now you're going backwards you would have been better off to just stay there and bed down all day yep so we had we had some uh, mule deer winter kill here several years ago that amazed me we had an early spring everything greened up and I'm driving up this this canyon going up to where we're going to shed hunt, and there are dead mule deer laying all over along the road, like 30 of them. Hmm. And so I actually called the biologist, and I got back, and I'm like, hey, there's, there's something going on up there. And he said, yeah, we had a, an early spring, and all of these grasses popped up, and there was absolutely no nutritional value in them. 
And the deer went and ate them and expended more energy digesting that food that they were eating than what they were getting out of it and literally starved themselves to death by eating non-nutritional food. Yeah. No, and he said, I'd, you know, they had a hard, long winter before that, and they'd used up all of their reserves, and they were down to the last little bit of fat, and they burned that up eating that grass and didn't replenish it and ended up dying. Yeah, I I think when I get done with these charts, so I'm going to graph one line of what the nutritional demands are for a lactating cow elk through, say, September 1st. And then, okay, here's how much the landscape has to provide for them to add 10% of body fat. Well, in a drought, they're likely not able to add that 10%. So here's this amplification of what drought causes in productivity of elk herds. Then they go into this later season, and if they have a hard winter in the northern latitudes, it I mean, you're going to lose a lot of your calves. You're going to lose a lot of, you know, they're going to abort a lot of the fetuses. And so drought is really this amplification thing that is being identified in all my research that I didn't give enough credit to. And I'm not just talking drought in an arid place like Nevada or Arizona. I'm talking about drought in the northern Rockies and places like that. Where the food's just not as lush and as nutritious because it doesn't have enough moisture content and... Yep. Then, you, then you take that, you know, you're in, say, the state of Idaho. You've got mm-hmm. a really dry summer, so the food's not as nutritious. Then yeah. they go into the fall, and, you know, they have an early winter. Snow hits early, and so they're having to expend more energy to find any food that's, again, still not as nutritious. Then yeah. they have a deep snow, and you throw in a pack of wolves that's chasing them up and down the mountain. They're expending 400% more energy than they would if they weren't being chased up and down the mountain. Then they come out of that and they have a really wet spring where things aren't greening up until the sun starts coming out later. And, I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. You've got, like you said, the first thing a cow is going to do, if she doesn't have enough nutrition during the winter, she's not just going to keel over and die. She's going to get rid of that extra 15% demand and abort that fetus. But yep. then she's already sitting on the on the border. And if she can't maintain that or, or fill that, she's going to die. And, you know, that's just, you you look at, they have a 70% increase in needs you'd mentioned during the time that they're lactating, which is June 1st through September 1st. They have a 15% increase during the gestation period, which is October something (laughs) through June 1st. So they basically have the month of September where they have a normal feed habit where they have just normal baseline. Everything yeah, else has increased. Yeah, that's where they try to build that 10 or 15% body fat. And so that's why that, in that September, window. Of, uh, yep. <laughs> Which is yep. when you're wanting to find the bulls, you find the most nutritious food source on the landscape, you're going to find the cows, and that's where the bulls are going to be. That's, that's the path I'm hoping to follow people down. And then, you know, some of the tools we've been working on with GoHunt for their mapping system, their terrain analysis tool, it's like, okay, here's where those types of premium foods will be found based on slope orientation, based on other stuff. Hopefully, you you then have the knowledge and you have the tools so you can adapt to whatever conditions are going to be there during the time you're hunting. 
because it, you're, you're not worried about where the elk are in June or July. You're worried about where are they on the day I'm hunting? Not last <laughs> week, not two weeks ago, not next week, but today. So, and uh, hopefully when I'm all done and that goes out in July, it won't be three months of <laughs> just like I already can't key, wait to, keyboard time. I can't wait so, to get my hands on it. So, yeah. So, anyhow, that's uh, you know part of the reason I've been. I know you and I have both been pushing go hunt on some of these map applications like the terrain tool. And there's some other ones that I've been pushing them on that they're, they'll be coming, uh, I think a little <laughs> later this year, but, uh, and uh, the other part, you know, they just came out with their Explorer package of maps, which is all 50 States. I think all 50 will be ready by the time this podcast drops. Uh, you get that for 49 bucks. And, Forty-nine uh, bucks a year, all the states. You get the train analysis, all the mapping features, the yeah. app, mobile yeah. app. Take it out in the field. There's some cool stuff yeah. coming on the app too that we've been really pushing for. And I, I bet you when they get an email or a phone call from us, Corey, they're like, "Oh no, not these guys again." <laughs> uh, no, they're. Uh, but the, so far, I haven't felt that. Uh, no, they've been. Mike especially has been super grateful for the feedback and. Yeah. So I, this, you know, this whole dive I'm doing, the the next part of the series is going to be kind of a similar dive about sanctuaries and what creates sanctuaries and boundaries and, you know, really a sanctuary being low hunting pressure areas surrounded or adjacent to high hunting pressure areas. So what creates those low hunting pressure areas? I'll be doing a, a similar nerding out uh, <laughs> for that. So. But I, I think that gets to uh, a question. Uh, John sent us an email. Uh, he's drawn a tag this year. And he said, hey, you know, you guys do all these videos. You talk about don't bother them with this. Don't bother them with that. And I know we've covered it before. But his question was more of what should I ask the biologist? And, you know, what's not going to be a waste of their time, a waste of my time, and an annoyance? Um, I guess, for me, I always say, do your own homework first. Yeah. <laughs> if you call up and say, hey, I drew tag whatever for the first rifle hunt, where would I go? They're going to send you to the same place they sent the other 43 people who called. <laughs> yep. No, and that's, you know, I, I can remember Arizona. The first time I drew Arizona, I jumped on their website and they have, you know, say you're hunting unit nine in Arizona. They say right on the website, concentrations of elk around this tank, around this mountain, around here. And that's the generic response. That's just, okay, this will get you into the right area and there's going to be elk there. But that's where, I mean, that's listed on their website where everybody's going to go and find that. And if you call up a biologist on the day the draws come out and say, where should I go? I drew unit nine. He's going to read you word for word off of the website. Well, there's elk up on this mountain. You can find them around this tank. You call him up and say, hey, I know these are some of the general areas. I read that on the website, but I've been looking at these three areas especially. There's a trailhead here. It looks like I can get into some remote country, and there's a couple tanks back in there. Have you spent any time back in there? Did the elk get pushed into there when there's pressure? I mean, the more specific you can be and let him know, I know this area. I have researched it. I've used common sense to find areas, you know, this information you're talking about for feed. 
hey, yeah. I know elk are going to be feeding on this in September. Is there much of that back in this area? What What do you see? Where are the elk going to find that premier feed source right now? Um, you know, don't don't call yeah. them up and say, where should I go? Because yeah. they're going to tell you the same thing they tell all 225 other tag holders, and you're all going to end up <laughs> at the exact same parking lot. And, yeah, bring your own rock to stand on. You know, <laughs> So for me, when no, I call that, uh, when I call a biologist, those are the things I'm asking. Plus, you know, objectives. What's your objective in this unit? Are you over or under objective as far yeah. as populations, bull to cow ratios, uh, things like that? What do you see the the peak rut in there? Because the peak rut in Unit Nine in Arizona might be way different than in an over the counter tag in Northwest Montana, and so they're going to be able to have that kind of information that's going to help you decide where to go. Don't ever call a biologist and ask them where to go. Call them, grill them for information that's going to help you make a better decision. Yeah. And as more of the tag results come out, I think, let's see, we get Utah next week. Not that any of us are going to be lucky enough to draw Utah, but (laughs) it'll come out. Uh, The week after that, uh, on May 20th, we get uh, Nevada. Again, probably none of us are going to be lucky enough to draw that. But then the last week of the month, we'll get Colorado. Uh, that'll, I mean, that's a ton of elk hunters there. They host more non-resident elk hunters. Oh, and I think the, if I remember think, right. Oh, Wyoming. Yeah, they, I was going to say, I our money for the last six months. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I think they're like May 18th or 19th, something like that. So, yep. <clears throat> but, so, uh, it, the other, I don't know if I really want to tell the world this. No, I'm not gonna. Okay. Not until after the draws are done. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you and I can chat after the podcast because now you got me interested. Yeah. Well, what it is, it's about you know going so to see. You are going to tell them. I, I'm going to give some generic <laughs> advice on this. Uh, <laughs> go and go and look and see what the proposed quota recommendations are. Some states let you adjust your your application in advance of that. And I can tell you that in Wyoming, there's virtually no change in the quotas. So, but I go and look at those every year because if there was a big change in the quotas, I and I was applying in unit, you know, A, and hey, they're cutting it by 20%. I'm going to be calling that biologist and say, hey, I see you recommended a 20% cut and in the quota. What's going on on the landscape? I might go in and change that application to a different unit then. Yeah. So, but I can save everybody the pain in the butt that there's hardly any change in the Wyoming quotas. So this year, this year. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I thought, oh, I don't know if it's even worth bothering people with, but no. I do that occasionally, bother people with completely <laughs> irrelevant information. But uh, well, so when, you give, are, are, when you give enough relevant and uh, highly valuable information out, you're you're uh, you're entitled to a little bit of fluff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you see the one email we got from the guy that? Uh, and I, I, this caught me completely off guard, and he's probably going to hear this and say, well, this is what kind of jerk you're being. Uh, <laughs> he, he said when, when you and I claim that we don't know that much, that it's passive arrogance and it's yeah. annoying to him. I did see that. I'm like, really? I, I'm just factually stating the more I research, the dumber I feel. 
and I'm old enough to know how little I know. Yep. And so I, well, and I think, I mean, it's when, when, and you, especially, I think you're much more modest about your, your knowledge level because I truly don't have a, a deep knowledge level. Yes. I, I go out and I understand elk behavior during the month of September, but outside that, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of information. I called you several years ago and said, Hey, I'm taking my kids out rifle hunting. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. What, where do I find elk in rifle season? So, um, I, I would, I would much rather learn from someone who recognizes that they don't know everything and that they're just as hungry to continue learning as the people they're trying to help along the way than someone who claims to be an expert that doesn't know more. Yeah you know, any more than, than anyone else. So if it's, if it's passive yeah. arrogance, um, <laughs> I guess that's better than aggressive arrogance, but yeah, it's, I, uh, it's I certainly not intended that way. It's, it's to, to shine a light on the fact that you and I are hungry to learn and there's still right. so much to learn and we'll never quit learning yeah. and never have a desire to, to quit learning. Yeah. And that, that's uh, quite, uh, and I, I think people feel we're being a little bit tongue in cheek that, <laughs> Uh, you, when you guys say quote unquote failure, i.e. not feeling a tag is actually a benefit. I really do feel that way. Cause the whole drive home for the whole next week, I'm like, what was, where was my head? Why, what, what was I doing wrong? Why was I not thinking what, what, the, you know, we beat, we beat ourselves up and analyze it over and over. Yeah. And it just is a further reminder that as quick as you think you know something about wild things and their behaviors, as quick as you start thinking that, they're going to hand you your teeth and thank <laughs> you for your time. They, they may not even thank you for their ta- your time. But uh, so that was an interesting email. Uh, yeah. and, and that's great. We, we love the feedback. It gives us something to think about for sure. Uh, and there and is some not, tongue in cheek. I mean, every once in a while, it's like you know, we we just got lucky. We we don't have a clue what we're doing. Where, yeah, we do have a clue what we're doing, but we certainly aren't experts, and we certainly aren't the the knowledge base that everybody needs to come to to learn everything. That's you know, there's, yeah, I, there's so much I don't know. I think if people attend any of the live events that we're at. They will hear time and again that, look, we're not the world's best elk hunters. We're lucky that we get to go a lot of places. We're lucky that we get to help on a lot of other hunts and hunt different times of year, different landscapes. And we make a lot of mistakes in the process. That's <laughs> the, that, that is the only thing that maybe separates us from others. And no matter where we're given a presentation, there is somebody in that local area who has that landscape dialed in and they kill a big bull every year and you just don't hear about them. Yep. There, there are a, a lot of amazing elk hunters out there. And when I bump into one of them, I'm taking a lot of notes. They, <laughs> they may not see me scratching anything down on a piece of paper, but every once in a while you bump into one of those locals who got it dialed in and I got a pretty good memory. I'm like, all right, if I get back to the room, I, I will be t- writing down some notes. So uh, those are the real experts of, of that vicinity and that location. And it's uh, it's fun to get to interact with them too, yep. because every once in a while you'll bump into one of them who's willing to talk. And, uh, then you, then again, it's another one of those events that opens your eyes to how little or how narrow my approach was to elk hunting. Yep. And, uh, so, but, and, uh, where it's, uh, 
elktalkpodcast.com yeah. is where they leave the, the feedback. Yep. Send us an email. Let us know if you're if you think that we're passively arrogant or, <laughs> or genuine, just arrogant or, or just genuinely <laughs> ignorant. <laughs> Uh, hey i got a question for you this this is uh, this question entered my mind as i was nerding out on all this uh forage behavior and forage availability if you do draw wyoming do you prefer to go because archery season is uh, september 1st to the 30th do you prefer to go early or do you prefer to go later you just go whenever it fits your calendar Hmm. So I have hunted Wyoming now, I believe, five or six times on the general tag. And we've hunted a couple different areas. And I have never had an opening day that I haven't had an elk bugle. So that's always cool to, to hunt early. Yeah. And a lot of times that's what you're up against is you hunt early and you, you don't get a lot of bugling action. I've hunted Wyoming late, like the last week of the season. And heard thousands of bugles and didn't call in a single elk. And so what I've, you know, in the areas that we hunt there and just the demographics and the terrain and the weather and everything else, I prefer to hunt early. And there's a couple other reasons they have, you know, some of those units have rifle mule deer hunts that open in the middle of September. Uh, so you get more traffic, more people at least going through elk country to get up to the high country. Uh, so that can affect it. So I prefer to hunt. Um, if I had to pick just a, a date range, I would say the 8th through the 15th would probably be ideal but then you have to look at the moon and you know some other things there um but that being said you know the elk are coming into peak rut and into estrus sometime around the 20th or so so the 15th through the 22nd can be prime time too so if i wasn't worried about a rifle elks or a rifle deer season coming in the middle of september i'd probably be looking at like 15th through the 22nd especially this year um but that's that's going to be the prime week, I think, in in my research for a lot of places this year. And I'm hoping to spend my 17 Colorado points this year. Oh. And so I'm saving uh, saving that week for that. So we're going to be going to Wyoming early if we draw Wyoming. So probably uh, sometime around the Labor Day weekend through the 12th or so, somewhere in there. Okay. And the reason I ask that is one of the studies shows that in alpine environments or montane environments, as they call it, that in early late August, early September, the concentration of quality forage is still dispersed across the landscape. By the end of September, the vegetation is kind of cured, and so it's more of a generic landscape. In other words, the quality of forage is mostly the same everywhere. Hmm. And, and it's more concentrated of, okay, there's still some forbs coming up that in early, late August, early September. So there are pockets that are super, super high-quality forage in late August, early September, more so than there is in late September. Well, and, the, and you've got a couple other factors. I mean, that's that goes to show, you know, the cows are still all super concentrated during that time. The mm -hmm. bulls are starting to stage themselves around the concentration of cows, but they haven't moved in, broken off into individual herds, gone back to that generic feed landscape. So, yeah, you can 
you know, there's there's areas you can hunt and run through there with a butterfly net scooping up elk. There's just so, <laughs> so concentrated. Yeah. So that again, that was another thing. It's it, you read multiple studies, and I've read some of these in years past, but this spring has been my my real deep dive into it. And you start putting little bits and pieces together of oh, maybe that's why I've observed this type of dispersal or this type of concentration or this type of behavior across the landscape. So that's uh, when I was reading that, I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? Oh, here's another really interesting one. And this gets to thermal regulation. Montane mountain-type herds. Their susceptibility to thermal regulation in hot temperatures, they are not trained and conditioned to adapt to it as well as lower elevation and desert or arid climate elk. So, right, we get that 85-degree stretch in September, and we say that the rut is, you know, there's no rut. It is just that these elk cannot function. And they know that they are burning serious energy trying to stay cool. And that's why they're going to be on those thickest, nastiest, darkest slopes or deepest canyons or whatever. And And the intensity of the rut is going to be minimized because of that. Mm -hmm. At least during the daylight hour. Yeah. It's so the other part that I, this, this is one that, and this is a study done in Yellowstone. It's another study done in Colorado. If they, collar all these elk and there's some way they can tell when they calve they go there right away and using the 250 day gestation period it's crazy how many how what the bell curve looks like in terms of starting in early september and go to late october where the bell curve peaks for the most pregnancies so there might be a lot of activity going on prior but the first four days of october are when most of the conception occurs yep i had no i i i was thinking like no it's got to be like september 10th through the 20th Mm. there's a lot of rutting going on there there's a lot of activity kind of building up to the you know the big event yep but and so, but then also there, the variations between altitude and latitude between some of those similar studies, that's, so there, there tries to be this bell curve within each geographic location. And if you talk to the biologists, they'll say that's because it's a evolutionary thing where if you have a big spike of calves hit the ground for, you know, a 10 day period. Only so much predation can happen in 10 days. Whereas if you spread that out over a 30 or 40 day calving period, you know, the wolves, you know, I'll eat another one today and I'll eat another one tomorrow. So they take 30 calves instead of 10 calves in that simple manner. So that's (laughs) another reason of why evolution has said no matter where their bell curve peaks out, it's a tight band between the number of days after that peak and the number of days before that peak, just to create this big pulse of calves on the ground as a predation, uh, anti-predation mechanism. Wow. There's so, so much that goes into all of I mean, you start thinking yeah. about feed and predation and thermoregulating and all of these things just 
to figure out <laughs> where elk are and what they're going to be doing for a seven-day window in September or October, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, and if there's one thing I gather from all this, it's why I firmly believe elk are never doing anything just for the heck of it. No. Everything they are doing every minute of every day is purposeful and with intention. Yep. They don't they don't have the luxury. Oh, I've I forgot to pick up groceries on my way home tonight. I'm gonna run back into town. They don't have these human luxuries that we kind of it, it, it's the view that we see the world because it's our daily life. Uh, the more you read this stuff and study it and try to connect dots, the more you realize that everything an elk does is for a really good reason. Yep. And uh, so. Very, very, very dissimilar to humans. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why yeah. success rates are where they are, because we just don't relate to that. It's like every minute of every day, they're doing something to stay alive. Yeah. And uh, you, we, we don't what, do that. <laughs> no, I, I don't anyhow. I, I do some really stupid things. If I was an elk, I'd be a casualty real quickly. <laughs> 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 but some of the other things I think that is is very interesting is in more arid landscapes, how elk have to, the, the net intake, how much it's impacted by locomotion or having to move from bet, both from bedding site to the prime feed site, but also across the landscape because forbs, at the time when forbs, let's say, are really nutritious and they're abundant on the landscape, they're still not very abundant in arid climates. Whereas in mountainous climates, forbs are super abundant in June. So an elk can stand in the same little meadow and eat until its belly's about ready to burst. So their net energy expenditure for locomotion to walk around and find these forbs is close to zero. Whereas the desert elk, he or she's, you know, it, it, the net value after all the energy expended to walk around gets to be a whole lot less. Yeah. And uh, how these collared elk have had to move and what their daily patterns are in those environments compared to mountain environments. That's why I focus so much on migratory and non-migratory elk, because their behaviors have to be different based on what the landscape provides them. Yep. So I'm done here now. No, no, please keep going. <laughs> <laughs> we've, uh, we've been here almost um, an hour and... And uh, wow, this you should see stuff. the white. You should see the whiteboards in this office. Right oh, now. I bet I, we we have whiteboards in every every room, and I've used them all up pretty much this this spring. And I take pictures of them because my biggest fear is the janitor's going to come in here and say, "Oh, I'm going to really do a good job today. I'm going to clean his whiteboard for him." <laughs> uh, I would come in, I'd be in tears if I saw my whiteboards and all my research. So I've been taking pictures of them <laughs> in case that's in case that happened. But uh, so that's a lesson. Anyhow, learned. <clears throat> that's a lesson learned in failure. Because yeah. at some point, you had a whiteboard erased, and now you've learned. You've I overcome. did. 
I can't remember if I had one erased or I erased somebody else's and got, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to be a good employee today. I'm going to erase the whiteboard. Uh, <laughs> Boss comes in the next day. All right. It was fired. <laughs> who, who erased my whiteboard? <laughs> so I, I, the reason I, I throw all this stuff out here, I think, is at this time of year is when people start doing all their research and e-scouting, when tags start coming in over the next month or two, Going out to these these studies and these research projects, super, super valuable. And they're all available online. It's not like I'm have some inside connection to somebody to find all this stuff. It's really boring reading. You read about 50 pages to get two paragraphs that really are worthwhile. The, the Cliff's Note version is always the abstract, which is the first part of the study. It's like a half page. Here's what we tried to, here was our hypothesis. Here was the conditions. Here were our findings. If nothing else, just read that part. But uh, a lot of good but stuff it's, It sounds like uh, here in the next couple of months, we're going to have the consolidated Cliff Notes of the entire <laughs> research available to us. Uh, thanks no, thanks it, to Randy it, Newberg. It won't all be available. It's I'm trying to weed out what 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 of this is actually relevant to someone doing e-scouting and researching and what is just going to be like static on a radio dial. <laughs> and that's the hard part because I'm such a nerd on this stuff. I think it's all relevant, but I I know what the audience will say. Newberg, I don't spare me the details, man. <laughs> So. Can you just send me a pin to where I'm going to find the elk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what we ought to do. Just start sending people. Okay, here's a here's a pin. We'll send you a go hunt pin right here. Hey, go right there. Yep. <laughs> and, and then they'd have something to blame it on. Hey, I listened to Newberg or Corey. That was that was a stupid idea. Don't listen to those guys. <laughs> um, but so. Other than that, I'm uh, I'm just waiting for for the draw results to come out because I don't think I'm going to draw much this year. Really, I, See, didn't, I didn't draw. I'm counting on it. I'm counting, uh, you know, based on points and all the research I did. My uh, go hunt insider got got uh, abused this year. Yeah, <laughs> just you get you get that many points, and it's so hard to try to decide what to do and where to go, and your options yeah. are so limited. But at the same time, just having two options and where to spend 17 points, I mean, that's an investment. I've been 17 years, I've been applying yeah. or building points so that I can apply, and now it's here. I get seven or eight days to go and get it done and then it's gone and I never get that chance again in my life. So it's, uh, yeah. it's a lot of stress and a lot of research that goes into that. But I'm counting on uh, Wyoming the first half, you know, first part of the season and then Colorado the second part. And then we'll probably, if if both of those happen, we'll probably end up just getting an over-the-counter rifle tag in Idaho and going somewhere cool in the backcountry, hopefully with llamas. Yeah, well. I'm counting on my Montana tag. I already have it. It's a general tag. <laughs> <laughs> you can count on that. Uh, I, I do. I do think that we'll draw the general Wyoming tag this year, um, based on the points that we have. Uh, me and Bo and my buddy Mike Spitzer, um, and I won't draw Wyoming or uh, uh, Utah. I only did points in Colorado because my schedule's so messed up. Uh, 
I didn't draw Arizona. I didn't draw New Mexico. I, I don't even think I applied in New Mexico because of my messed up calendar. I, I got all these sweepstakes hunters I, I've committed to that I got to take. Uh, so gotcha. I got to get I was going to say, why is, your, why is your schedule messed up? Because you didn't draw a moose tag and a goat tag and <laughs> sheep tag and an ibex tag and whatever uh, else you drew in one year. It's <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I got two really great guys lined up that one the RMEF, you know, RMEF does a win a hunt with Randy every year. Uh, and I got two of them. Well, one guy didn't draw last year. So we rolled them into this year. So I want to, want to get both of those done. And, uh, so yeah, it's just, and then I promised my niece I was going to take her hunting. So I got her on the books to, to go hunting. That's my graduation present to all my nieces and nephews. Oh, they get very cool. <clears throat> they get to go hunting with me for a week. And I just, I always feel that that's more quality time than me showing up at a graduation as one of 300 people and, you yep. know, go, go through the greeting line and, you know, hear grandpa tell the same story he was telling <laughs> 20 years ago. So, <laughs> Very uh, so that's why, that's why I don't, I don't have big plans for myself this year, but I do for other people. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I got a lot of friends who are like, Hey, if I draw, you want to come with? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Please. <laughs> oh, <laughs> have llamas. We'll travel. Did, didn't you so, say, I, it seems like you're going to cook for me somewhere. Was that, we had a discussion about that, didn't yeah, we? Yeah. I offered, I would be your camp cook if you needed it, okay. but you just, you, you not let, you know, I'm I, I waiting for draw results. I, I don't want to line okay, up a okay. cook before I draw a tag. I mean, that's getting, oh, the, okay. that's <laughs> getting the cart in front of the horse there. That's kind of like the old saying, you talk about your, the quality of your shooting after the hunt, not that's before right. the hunt. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, Every person I've ever hunted with that brags about how good of a shot they are inevitably yeah. misses at 200 yards. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, that's that is one of those things. That that should that it's not marriage advice that, that I normally give, but it's kind of just you know good hunting advice. Brag about your shooting after the hunt, not before the hunt. <laughs> so, so maybe that's what you're doing there. You're you're kind of holding out on me. You don't want me to know what unit you might be applying for. Well, but, uh, just you know, increasing my odds yeah. if I don't draw this year. So. Yeah, Uncle Larry drew Arizona elk, but he's an Arizona resident, so yeah. that'll be fun. He drew a really good unit, and uh, he's always such a blast. I, <laughs> I have so much fun with him. You know, he's he's going to be 76 years old, 12 years of experimental chemo. He has no, due to neuropathy, he has no feeling left in his toes and his feet. So he, he stumbles and falls. You'd swear he's drunk when he's out there. Though. <laughs> I give him trekking poles because not, not just to make it easier, you know, to take some weight off him. It's so that he doesn't fall and hurt himself. Uh, <laughs> Is that, I'm guessing that's a rifle hunt. Is it early rifle? Yeah. No, uh, it's a uh, late, late rifle. rifle. It start starts a day after Thanksgiving, so oh, fine. I'll be I'll be down doing that. That's uh, I, you know, as I think for both of us, this time with our family and our dear friends out in the hills are are the real treasures and pleasures of of the hunting we do, and you know, it is, Larry and that's said, you know, it's so many people, you know message and email both you and I and say, Hey, what would it take to hunt with you? You know, can you, can I hunt with you? And realistically, mm -hmm. there's just so little time and 
I've got three kiddos that are in the prime of, of learning to hunt and, and wanting still to spend time with dad. And I've got to spend any spare time I have, you know, I've got to make time for them. And, you know, I, I do two hunts in September and try to do one in October and November and, that's it for me. And then everything else, we've got our Outfitters for Hope hunt and then hunting with my kids and, you know, Donnie making sure that he, uh, if he breaks his leg, he's got somebody to pack him up a mountain <laughs> to get close to an elk. And so, I mean, it's just so, I would love to hunt with, I have really, really good friends that I've never hunted with. You and I haven't mm-hmm. got to hunt together for a few years. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so little time that, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. treasured treasured time to be able to do that with good friends and family yeah so hey you see how many people are asking what you're doing with destination elk this year yeah there's been a few (laughs) (laughs) a few yeah right uh when are you when are you gonna let the world know what you're doing with destination elk i think once we know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well anyone who hasn't watched it they should go watch it you work your butt off like I can't even imagine how much complication you had with coordinating all that and you and then John having yeah. to go through all that footage. Oh my gosh. Oof. Yeah. You know, I think for me it's it's part of my nerdy nature. You know, I the engineering, I've got spreadsheets and everything. So Everything, you know, planning it up front. Of course it never goes according to plan, but at least having a really detailed plan in the beginning helped that. And then working with the people we got to work with, you know, people like you and Bo Beatty and Tyler and Lenny from Pure Elevation and the Angry Spike guys and the Skousens and just, you know, everybody that that was a part of that um, made it a bunch of fun. You know, they wanted to be involved. They wanted to, to do all they could to make it successful. And so it wasn't just you know, me sitting here making a, a project work. It was everybody participating in it. And then like you mentioned, John, the effort that he put in to have to go through that you just you don't understand. I mean you understand, but most people don't understand when you go out and film a hunt for seven days and you come back, you have hard drives filled <laughs> with footage and you've got to narrow down. I would say on on average we probably have on a seven day hunt 20 to 25 hours of footage of actual footage. And we've got to narrow that down to less than an hour. Yeah. But it's not easy. You you have to go through and watch all of that again. And that's if you filmed it. Now you take nine different camera guys sending everything to one person. He has no idea what they saw. He has no idea what action they got into. John had to watch all of that footage and then take notes and then pull out the key pieces for each day to put that together. And just the amount of time and energy and effort, you know, the poor guy's eyeballs probably were about to burn out from staring at his monitor, but he, uh, he did it. And to his credit, kept the energy. I mean, he was still finding the exciting stuff and putting effort into it and making it, you know, it didn't just taper off at the end, like, okay, I'm burned out, we're done. Uh, it was it was good through the end, but with all that being said, that was probably a little more work than we want to we want to burden John with again. <laughs> um, 
but we'll be doing something similar. Uh, one of the comments we got was it just felt like it bounced around too much. It felt like, you know, you've got seven teams, you've got a 45 minute episode, we're getting five or six minutes with, with each team. We don't get any of their highlight. You know, we're just getting the highlight reel. We don't get to learn about the struggles. You aren't showing them, you know, how they're facing adversity and what they're doing during the downtime, how they're overcoming some of those struggles. Um, so I think we're going to reduce the, the overall number of teams, but still keep a team concept uh, where we're, you know, bouncing back and forth between a, a handful of teams each day and still do a day by day, probably an eight day period again. Um, the episode lengths will be just as long, if not maybe even a little longer, so that we can spend more time with each of those groups. Uh, and then we've got you know other projects, the hunt of or the Outfitters for Hope hunt that we do. Uh, my Colorado hunt will probably do something either a day by day feature with it or something like we did with Alaska. Uh, so a lot mm-hmm. of cool stuff coming for for Destination Elk for sure. We don't have all the wrinkles ironed out, but we have a, at least a, a rough draft. Yeah. Well, it's fun stuff. I I really enjoyed watching it, and I, you know, when you're out there filming, there's a little bit of the. Oh, I wonder what's going on there. I wonder what those guys are having for luck. Because <laughs> I knew how bad we were sucking it. <laughs> but, uh, but well, wherever you go, uh, there's a place. I'm just reading what RMEF is funding for large landscape projects this year crazy the number of projects they've there are 19 projects that they funded in 2021 for habitat improvement like i'm, I'm talking like large large landscape yeah. and uh then what they're gonna fund this year holy cow wyoming washington utah oregon new mexico montana idaho arizona Oof. and then there's another one about colorado yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, we're, we're seeing the post COVID, you know, effects of, Hey, we're, we're able to have banquets now. We're able to mm-hmm. raise more money that got shut down for a year and a half or two years there. And, and now we're seeing not only the opportunity, but I think most of us as elk hunters are hungry to go and, and be at those events and, and uh, interact with each other and, and support conservation. And so that is just a reminder that if you're not a member of the Elk Foundation, you should be. And if you are, you find the banquet close to you and go support the, the local chapter and have a good time. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking just at Arizona when you drill into it. Arizona between RMEF and the partner funding, $2,098,000 for dirt tanks for uh water source upgrade for landscape I'm, I'm just reading what it falls under a lot of them are water there uh pinion juniper encroachment um it just and that's just one state and yeah. uh, so they're doing a lot of great stuff so if you get a chance i would plead to you to become a member of the rocky mountain elk foundation and and all the good work they do for the things that we love so what else we got Corey? we've only been at it for an hour and five minutes <laughs> that's what they say <laughs> the audience is saying only only <laughs> come on man yeah are you <laughs> let me talk, go are you gonna talk about anything fun <laughs> yeah yeah, do we have anything fun to talk about uh, uh, I, don't, I could bore them with 
details more. from Nevada shed hunting, but it was yeah. so bad that I've scheduled four more days next week to go back down yeah. and see if I can uh, make it I, better. I, I saw on your Instagram channel that you flew into someplace shed hunting. You're getting out of hand with this shed hunting stuff. I mean, well, I'm trying to just, get away from if people. You, if you just hang them in trees, you wouldn't have to fly and drive to all these places. I'd probably it. find so many more too if I wasn't you actually would. looking for them. Yeah. Do you do you have a shed hunting chapter in your University of Elk hunting course? I don't. Oh, that's that, that's such top secret knowledge. You're not. Willing <laughs> I was going to gonna say that, there's huh? some things that you just don't <laughs> don't give up. Uh, are you still giving people a discount if they use the Elk Talk podcast? Absolutely. Elk, what is it? Elk Talk. Elk is that Talk. The promo code. Yep. Elk okay. Talk. All, All one right. word. Save twenty bucks on the University of Elk hunting. So just go, go to elk101.com. Yep. Oh, there you go. I will tell you, folks, there is no place out there where you will be able to get as much elk hunting information as Corey's University of Elk Hunting. That's, there's some things that are just a fact, Corey. It's, <laughs> it's you know, it's, it's not bragging, right? What, what did the one basketball player say? It's, it's not being cocky if you can do it. So, <laughs> I hadn't heard I, that one. <laughs> no, I, I, who was it that said I, that? I can't remember who that was. But anyhow. Um, well, we were in Nevada the other day. We got snowed out and we got forced into a $49 hotel. And uh, the NBA playoffs were on and mm. the Warriors were playing. And I'm a, I'm a huge Steph Curry fan, but they lost that night. John Morant had 47 points and it was one of the most impressive performances, basketball performances uh, I've seen. And he did it with one eye. He got poked in the eye and couldn't see out of one of the eyes. But <laughs> this time wow. of year is tough for me to watch basketball. You know, I take in March Madness and the NCAA, but then shed season and it rolls into to bear hunting. And so I don't get to watch a lot yeah. of NBA teams. But. Yeah, I'm, I'm rolling out on my first bear hunt on Monday for five days here in Montana. Nice. So if I find any elk antlers, I'll hang them up in the tree. Yeah. I appreciate so, that. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. Marcus Marcus is like you when it comes to shed antlers. He brought one to the office last fall, and it has disappeared. And you would swear that he lost his computer or something or his yeah. cell phone or, or someone stole his car. I'm like, it's just a shed antler. Get back to work. <laughs> He's like looking in the bathroom, tearing the cupboards, opening the refrigerator, looking for a shed antler. It's like you guys, uh, those of you who look for shed antler, you're, you're wired differently. Well, okay, I'm probably wired differently. It's probably the no. The there's real a there's a and and I recognize it. There's just some of us that. I don't know if we got deprived of Easter egg hunting when we were little and this is <laughs> our way of making up for it. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but man, there is something that drives me over the next ridge just hoping to find something somebody else hasn't laid their hands on yet. And I think huh. that's, you know, I you had mentioned something about, you know, you'll do anything for an antler. And it's like, you know, it's it's not the antler that that drives me it's the adventure mm -hmm. and the antler okay. is just the vehicle to get me on the adventure i think and you know you mentioned mm -hmm. we flew into the back country and got dropped off with uh, alpaca rafts and yep. uh, hiked in 10 miles from the from the back country airstrip and shed hunted and then rafted out and i'd never done that before i'd never flown in for sheds i'd never you know i took a raft across rivers and across creeks before but i'd never 
gone down whitewater in them with uh, with sheds in them and everything. And it is a ton of fun. I'm going to do that more this summer just for no reason other than to go up and float down some rapids in a little <laughs> one-man inflatable raft. It was oh, a lot of fun. Uh, do you have a promo code so people can save money on their alpaca raft? I don't, but I uh, understand that they can use Randy, I think. Yeah, that's one I use. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if you had one or not. I don't know. I uh, I use the the promo code Randy when I ordered my alpaca raft, and yeah. I love well, them. We we don't want anyone to pay full retail, so that's why we do all the promo code stuff. So, yep. uh, you, you floating down a rapids in full runoff with an alpaca raft full of shed elk antlers. Uh, if, if I had to put together a picture dictionary that uh, and where it said fool, that's it. I, I'd use that picture for the definition. Of no, it wasn't. Fool. I mean, it really, you know, I'm, I'm apprehensive a little bit at first because I hadn't done it before and I don't know how these things are going to handle, but they handled so good in, in those rapids. You know, we took rope and first couple great big sets of rapids, we were kind of tethering our raft through it and letting it go down through and we were walking the bank and I got to one and thought, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to, I'm going to give this a try. Went through it just flawlessly and after that it was like yeah. man here we go but yeah well and if you go to go to alpaca's website uh, they uh they show some people doing some really serious white water with their rafts i'm like nope i don't need that I nope. <laughs> my my dog paddling skills aren't that good so <laughs> that was the worst part was i took a wetsuit so we packed in a wetsuit and and everything i mean it's like you said, it's spring runoff. It's cold. I, I didn't know the difference between a wetsuit and a dry suit. I I now uh-huh. know because John had a dry suit on and I had a wetsuit on. You and get wet a in a warmer. wet. You get wet in a wetsuit. Right. Yeah. It's just an extra layer of insulation, but you're still soaking wet. I was mm-hmm. soaked. It rained on us most of the way down. It was. Uh, we got out at dark, and. Uh, I think the temperature was about 38, 39 degrees. So that part of it, you know, I'm going to wait till summer to, to try it again, but it was a lot Did you find any antlers? So here's the beauty. We fly in to a backcountry airstrip. We hike 10 miles. We take rafts to get them out. And somebody had already beat us in there. Oh man. Yeah. All that. I don't know how they got in there. Yep. But I found, (laughs) I think I brought out 14 elk antlers, only three of which were from this year, but I found two giant sets from last year that were (laughs) great big Idaho bulls. So So it was fun. Now now we know where Corey's going to be hunting this fall. Nope. That's uh, (laughs) 10 miles. That's too, I mean, you could pack them out with the alpaca rafts, and that's I ordered yeah. my raft based on one person with four elk quarters in there, and uh, okay, figured out do, what that weight was. Do you guys who do this shed antler hunting? Do you ever use it for like a little bit of a? I don't know if scouting is the right word, but a little bit of recon and intel. Yeah, there's certain areas. A lot of these areas, you know, the elk migrate so far that tracking down Mm -hmm. a particular bull is tough but yeah yeah, i mean in the spring we we flew back in march just to see where the elk were concentrated and that definitely opens my eyes to hey there's a pile of elk right here where are they coming from and so then you go back and look at you know 3d imagery and it's like okay 
everything flows right into here from this mountain. All those elk have to be dispersed on this mountain. So there has to be a huge population of elk here. So it definitely, hmm. definitely helps. I know, you know, in states, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, there are people that will shed hunt and find a, a specific bull and then go hunt that bull in the fall. But in these mountain states, yeah. that's pretty hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I go hunt whatever elk gets in, in my path. And, <laughs> and so the, for me, to, the foolishness to think that I would find one that I saw on the winter range. Yeah. Good luck with that, Randy. But, yeah. Well, Corey, I'm going to let you go because we got a lot of work to get done yet today. Yep. And, uh, hopefully the audience hangs around for the next podcast. We haven't run them off yet. So. Man, well, I was just going to say I appreciate the the level of research that you're putting in on that. I mean, just what you shared in 45 minutes on this episode has me excited to see what all you've got coming out. That's that's just real information. That's that's helpful stuff. So I know it takes hours and hours to compile that so that we can digest it in an hour. So thank you for doing yeah. that. Yeah, for sure. I uh, you know. It's probably going to be worth what someone pays for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, like I said, we've got a money back guarantee right here on the podcast. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you have a great day, Corey. You too. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.